If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the first of our October 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. You need to visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or keep track of us on Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra, and Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up, this issue. And without hesitation, he dragged her by the hair. Tracy Borman there on how William the Conqueror wooed his bride, Matilda. Perfumes were quite important in the Bronze Age. John Henderson on what archaeologists are learning from the submerged Bronze Age town of Pavlo Petri. Okay, our first interview is with Tracy Borman, whose new book, Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror, has just been published. The Matilda in question was the Queen of King William the Conqueror, who famously invaded England in 1066. Tracy has written a great feature for the October issue of the magazine, where she explores how Matilda had a key part to play in that Norman conquest. The first question I asked Tracy when I spoke to her was... Who is Matilda? Well, it is a good question to start with because um, Matilda is so little known for such an important figure. She was uh, Matilda of Flanders. She was born to Count Baldwin V of Flanders and Adela of France, who was the daughter of the King of France. So she was incredibly well connected and she could trace her descent back to Charlemagne, the great emperor, as well as to King Alfred of England. And it was that connection in particular that would be really significant in Matilda's life. So she started off as 
was, you know, very well-born um, young lady. As I say, she could, um, she was connected to most of the royalty and and dukes and princes within Europe, um, and yet she sort of receded into the background of history. And it was only when she married the future William the Conqueror that she really came to prominence. So. What was it that uh, attracted her to William? How did, how did William the Bastard, as he was known then, um, get embroiled with Matilda, this, this important figure from Europe's aristocracy? Well, it's quite interesting because uh, Matilda, it seems, was not at all attracted to William. She did not want anything to do with him. When he was proposed as a potential husband, um, nobody thought to actually consult Matilda because, of course, the negotiations, as usual, were conducted by the men in the family, and so it was her father, Bold in negotiating directly with William and his advisers and they'd almost reached an agreement when suddenly you know somebody thought to consult Matilda and she immediately said that she would not ally herself to the base-born Duke of Normandy as she called him you know um, uh, uh, referring to his his menial origins um, as you mentioned, he was the illegitimate son of Duke Robert of Normandy. Um, and so William, when he heard this, was absolutely furious because nobody so dared to insult William, this great warrior king who everybody feared. And as soon as he heard that Matilda had rejected him as a suitor, he rode at breakneck speed from Normandy across the border into Flanders. And he reached Matilda as she was apparently making her way to chapel in her father's palace in Britain. Rouge. and without hesitation he dragged her by the hair and flung her down into the mud and kicked and beat her until she was almost dead. And then the story goes, what did Matilda do? Well you might expect this fiercely independent woman would just be outraged by such treatment but apparently she said, all right then, if you put it like that, I'll marry you. So what, what, what year was this? When are we talking? This was around um, 1049, 1050. As with um, so many um, events in, in the 11th century, particularly those involving women, we can't be absolutely certain about dates. But looking at the, the dates of their um, children when they were born, we, c we can imagine it's around 1050. Okay. And do, uh, do we know how old William and Matilda were at this time? Uh, Matilda would have been almost 20, um, sort of, you know, 19 or 20. William would have been in his mid-twenties by then. Mm. So would Matilda have been quite old for, for, to be married at that point? Absolutely. It was quite common for um, daughters of noble families or, or royalty to be married off at 12. That was the sort of average age, really, at that time. And so Matilda may well have been wondering when it was her turn. I don't know if her father had waited for a suitably prestigious match. And indeed, Duke Robert was very prestigious. Sorry, Duke William was very prestigious at that time. Um, so, but yes, she was quite old, you know, especially if she was as old as 20. Um, most women would have already be, already be on their kind of fifth child probably by then. Yeah. So perhaps a surprising response being dragged around in the mud was that she thought she needed to get married and this was the best opportunity. Exactly. I mean, th that there are hints in the sources, and I do talk about this in my book, about um, there may have been a, a sort of darker side to Matilda's past which, which could have prompted her to change her mind about William because there were rumours about Matilda and a certain Saxon nobleman who visited her father's court. He was named Britric and there were rumours of an affair. We know for certain that Matilda actually proposed marriage to Britric, um, which was just not done. I mean, for a woman to actually, you know, not consult her father and just to go ahead and offer herself in marriage, but Britric spurned her, he turned her down. But there is the merest hint that there may have been a, um, a child as a result of their affair. And perhaps Matilda didn't want that scandal to come to light, so she decided that marriage to William was better than that. Mm. 
Do, do we know um, what the respective positions of Normandy and Flanders were at the time? Was, was this an equal match or, or was, was one side getting a better deal? I think it was a pretty equal match because both provinces were, were on the up, really. Thanks to Baldwin, Flanders had become immensely influential in Europe. He'd, he'd Flanders fought... is basically the low country. Exactly, right? yes, and, and part most of, of which um, would be part of modern-day northern France, in fact, mm. um, because it's sort of contracted since. Um, but it was on the up. Um, towns were prospering as, as a result of trade. And Normandy, likewise, thanks to William, who, as I said, was this great warrior duke and who'd ex expanded the territories of Normandy substantially was also a very good province with which to be allied. So it was a pretty much equal match. But Matilda never saw it that way. She see seemed to see it as, uh, you know, she was luring herself to marry um, the illegitimate uh, Duke of Normandy, who, as you said, was known as William the Bastard. Mm. And do we, you know, once they got married, do we, do we have a sense of whether they got on well? What, what sort of relationship did they have? Well, the sources infer, you know, a picture of domestic harmony. Certainly it was one of the most dynastically successful marriages in history because Matilda was almost constantly pregnant um, for the first 15 years of their marriage. She gave birth to at least nine children. It could have been as many as 11. And the extraordinary thing is that not only she survived all of those um, births, but her children did. They all survived into adulthood, which was incredibly rare. It bucked all the trends of those times. And so in that sense alone, it was a very successful marriage. And also, you know, there are hints that um, they, they did get along quite well. They grew to be quite affectionate. But certainly it seems that William adored Matilda and, and she perhaps tolerated him and she enjoyed the power that the match gave her. But I don't think there was any real affection there on her part. Because mm, I mean, nine kids from a, a standing start at the age of 20, it, or, or, well, perhaps, yes. perhaps was something before that, but that's, that is, you know, even by today's standards, that's, that, that, would, that would be pretty impressive. It's very impressive. And also the fact that, you know, Matilda didn't look like she was built for childbirth. She was only four foot two, according to the um, remains that, that were discovered. Um, her skeleton was discovered at Caen in the 1960s and, and measured. And, and we can be pretty sure they were her bones that were, that were found. And so, you know, really diminutive woman to give birth to, to nine, possibly 11 very healthy children is, is extraordinary. And do we know what she looked like? You didn't say she was short. Do we have any contemporary portraits or anything like that to, to, to give us an idea about what sort of woman she was? There are no surviving contemporary images, but what we do have are engravings that have passed um, through the centuries of earlier portraits. So in a way, it might be like sort of Chinese whispers in paintings in that, remarkably, most of them are done in the 19th century and Matilda looks a lot like Queen Victoria, which mm. you think is perhaps a little bit suspicious. But the written accounts of Matilda all attest to her beauty. She was lauded for her beauty and she was seen, you know, as, as one of the most attractive consorts in Europe. But then it was fairly typical for chroniclers to flatter the wives of important men. But also Matilda's daughters were seen as great beauties. So I think there may have been something behind those descriptions. Mm, okay. So they got married in the, the mid-11th century. Um, uh, for the next decade or so, William would have been charging around northern France, securing his possessions, fighting various wars. Would Matilda have been with him, or would she have stayed 
in Con or somewhere like that. What did we know what was going on there? Yeah, we can trace Matilda's movements as well as uh, Williams, and she was constantly on the move. She was always travelling, even though you know often heavily pregnant at the time. She was always on the move because she realised, I think, even more than William did, the need to be visible to their subjects. And so William did begin to give her a lot of power because he was off on campaign so much that he needed somebody to focus on the sort of political affairs of his dukedom. And Matilda was perfect for that. She'd been raised as the daughter of one of the most important political figures in Europe. And she was she was incredibly canny in that respect. And so she, she earned herself a lot of respect, a lot of power during those kind of critical years when Normandy was really taking hold. Mm, okay. And then sort of moving forward in time a bit, we get to the, sort of the big event in William's reign, or at least as we remember it now, 1066, the invasion of England, the Battle of Hastings and, and, and all that followed. Um, what was Matilda doing? Matilda was fully behind the invasion for a start because, you know, it's easy for us to see with hindsight that it was inevitable, of course, the Norman conquest, we all know the, the outcome of that. But in fact, it was seen as an extraordinarily risky enterprise at the time. And William was not expected to succeed because his claim to the English throne was quite dodgy, frankly. And, you know, he a lot of it possibly was a result of Norman propaganda after the event claiming that Edward the Confessor had named William his heir. And we're not sure if he did or when he did. But Matilda, from the beginning of William sort of conceiving this idea of invading England, was fully behind him. And she built um, a famous flagship, the Mora, for, in which um, William sailed over to England. And she, she made all sorts of religious bequests in order to kind of give the sort of God's sanction, really, to the invasion. So she was enormously influential. But I think her most important contribution to the Norman Conquest was that she took over the reins of government in Normandy. She was um, appointed officially as regent of Normandy, which really gave William um, the freedom to then pursue his ambitions in England. Ah, so she, she didn't go to England with the fleet, she stayed in Normandy? She stayed in Normandy initially. Um, it was in fact two years after the Battle of Hastings that she joined William. And the reason for the delay is, is well, firstly, she had lots of business to conduct in Normandy because, of course, um, the dukes, all, all the powerful dukes and, and earls and um, subjects in Normandy were very quick to try and seize the opportunity of William's absence to seize power themselves. Um, but Matilda stopped them from doing that. She was a very effective ruler. But also, um, she was probably pregnant yet again um, during that time. And indeed, um, when she finally arrived in England, she was pregnant with her uh, ninth or um, final child, certainly. Um, and it was enormously significant that she gave birth to that child on English soil, and he would become, indeed, the future King of England. Um, who was that, sorry? That was Henry, her youngest son. Right. And actually the only son, she had uh, four sons, but he was the only son whom the English actually recognised as being legitimate, and largely because he was, he was born on English soil. So how difficult was, was it for Matilda in Normandy to exercise the power that William had entrusted in her? Then you, you talked about the, the great men trying to take advantage. Yeah. What, what, what could she do to, to stop that? I think Matilda, I mentioned earlier, she's, she's constantly travelling and I think that's, that was really the key to her success because she made sure that um, the Norman uh, family were very visible in the province of Normandy. So she made use of her sons, her other sons, um, to sort of be symbols of her and William's power. Um, she was just very politically astute. So she would, she would hold court, she would be able to uh, witness charters. Uh, her signature is present on hundreds of 
of charters from this time. So she was right at the heart of business. She had a real attention to detail and made sure that all the business was conducted through her. So it's quite interesting. I mean, she's often seen as, a, as a, you know, sort of, if she's seen at all, then it's as a passive wife whose only preoccupation with, at this time was making the Bayeux tapestry. You know, she was, uh, but in fact, she probably didn't do that at all. I wouldn't imagine she'd had time. Her business was primarily one of government. Okay. Um, so once William had, had gone across the channel, won his famous victory, had himself crowned, um, then Matilda eventually comes over. Um, what does she then do? How, how does she help William secure his throne in England? Matilda was enormously um, influential in England. She came over in 1068, uh, around Easter time, and the first thing she did was to set about planning a magnificent coronation. Again, she was she was uh, she had a real talent for PR. Uh, she liked uh, public sort of shows of royalty, and she instituted things called crown wearings, where people just flocked to pay homage to herself and William. And her coronation was the largest ever seen for a queen. She and she was almost crowned um, as being an equal to her husband, which was enormously significant. She was the first um, of the Queens of England to be rec formally recognised as Queen, because before that the Saxons had merely referred to a Queen as the King's wife. But Matilda was, um, you know, William and Matilda both made a lot of her dynastic legitimacy. It was really essential to William that um, his own bastardy be kind of disguised by the fact his, his wife could trace her descent to King Alfred. So the coronation was an important beginning. But then, as she did in Normandy, she became she involved herself very closely in all of the, the affairs of England, from justice to legal affairs to religious matters. She wanted all the business to come through her. And so William did increasingly rely on her in affairs of the English government, as he did in Normandy. So what did the, the English people think about that? Because if, if what you're saying is right, and I'm sure it is about the Anglo-Saxons and the Saxons not... Not, not having this 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 view of a queen, then they must have been slightly perturbed by by her having so much power. Absolutely, and and for, for the first few years of Matilda's reign, they called her the strange woman. You know, it wasn't an overnight success for Matilda. She had to work really hard to overcome their prejudices, and I think she just was very talented at, at sort of courting the affections of her people, and, and just gradually and and quite subtly, she began to win popularity, and it was through. Um, by being kind of quite understanding of their needs because William just you know he implemented his rule by fire by rampage by just quashing the spirit really of the English whereas Matilda tried to respect their traditions um, for example the death of Edward the Confessor's widow um, Queen Edith who was seen as really the true queen um, Matilda insisted that uh, Edith be given a very lavish funeral and be paid every possible respect and it was gestures like that that really won over the English people and they did begin to respect her as queen and not just as the king's wife Mm. Edward the Confessor, of course, was the, the king who, uh, who proceeded, well, he didn't immediately precede William because there was Harold between them. But, exactly. But he, he was the last, the last Anglo-Saxon king. Absolutely. So when did Edith die then? Was she, she was still that alive was, well into the That was 1075. Race. So right. really, until her death, she was seen as the true queen and Matilda had to battle against that because she was, of course, the, the symbol of the Saxon dynasty versus these hated Norman oppressors. Yeah. Did, they, did they meet, Edith? And, There's and no Matilda? record that they actually met, no. no. 
um, not at all. But um, Matilda was very aware of her. And I think as soon as Edith had died, then that really paved the way to Matilda's full acceptance by the English people. Hmm. But presumably she was never in a position of, of, say, as modern parlance would say, a people's princess. She would never have had the affection of the, of the English people because she'd come across as a conqueror and a foreigner. I think she did become very popular. I mean, obviously, she, she was a Norman and she was the symbol of the Norman dynasty, but, um, you know, there the, are many reports later on in, in Matilda's reign of, of, you know, thousands of people flocking to see her, and she was known as Queen Matilda, wealthy and powerful, and people would actively seek her patronage. It was more of a sort of respectful um, relationship she had with the English, perhaps than the sort of, you know, wildly popular, you know, affectionate uh, feelings that they had towards um, Queen Edith, who, who died in 1075. You, you say that she, she was important in how the Normans uh, sorted out their power base and made themselves the, the kings of England. Mm. Um, so how significant was she in that? W would William have, have, have not been able to establish himself as well as he had if he hadn't been married to Matilda? I think without a doubt, uh, William would not have been able to conquer England or at least hold on to England um, in the way that he did had it not been for his wife sort of working behind the scenes really um, uh, in, in sort of courting popularity for the Norman dynasty because, you know, it's all very well for William to be winning victories by the sword but unless he won the affection of the people and the loyalty of the people then those victories meant nothing and that's what Matilda was working towards really winning over the English people's loyalty and um, the fact that she, she just had that kind of knack for public relations. She knew, for example, I mentioned that her last child, Henry, was born on English soil. Well, not just on English soil, on Yorkshire soil, because Yorkshire was one of the most rebellious provinces in England. And so Matilda, there's Matilda, she's about eight and a half months pregnant, and she decides that she's going to join William up north in York to give birth there, because William was currently besieging the city of York, and she wanted the, the prince, as she was confident it would be, to be born on Yorkshire soil. And she made it as far as Selby, which is about 14 miles south of York, but it was enough. It was enough of a symbol. Do we have any inkling of, of how far or, or whether William at all recognised or appreciated what Matilda was doing? I think the, the symbol of that is just how much affection and respect William felt for Matilda because there are numerous references and increasingly so of, of William you know saying how much he adored Matilda, how she was his equal um, in government. You know he really did and this was not a man who gave out praise easily mm. and so she had really gained his respect, she'd gained his admiration and I think that was enormously significant and just the very fact you know as well as his words his actions spoke for him because he was always deputising you know he, he was always um, giving business for, to Matilda to conduct on his behalf both in England and in Normandy so he recognised how important she was and that in itself was really significant. Kings didn't often do this. Sure. The Queen was there largely in a sort of domestic capacity to produce the heirs, to look after the household, not to get involved in government. Mm, okay. Who, who died first? Who outlived? Matilda died first mm. in 1083 in Caen. And unfortunately, though, by that stage, their relationship had really 
broken down because um, some years previously, in around um, 1077, uh, her eldest son Robert, uh, nicknamed Robert Kurt Hose on a, uh, account of his short stature, rebelled against William. And rather than standing by her husband, as everybody would expect, William, uh, Matilda secretly funded Robert's rebellion. She sent him money um, while he was in exile. And William, of course, found out in the spy-ridden world of the Norman court, and he berated Matilda in front of the entire court. She was lucky to escape with her life, actually, because she was effectively a traitor um, in supporting her eldest son. But William forgave her, but things were never the same between them. And actually, he did deprive her of power from that day forward. And I think that's when you suddenly start getting talk in the sources of Matilda's failing health. It was like this incredibly energetic, resilient woman really fed from the power that she was given. And when that was taken away, she began to decline. Hmm, OK. How unusual was she as a as a woman at this period i think matilda was quite um extraordinary for that time the, the mid 11th century wasn't a great epoch of, of sort of powerful women that's not to say she was the only powerful woman, woman in history of course there have been other examples the 10th century was quite a sort of zenith for female power but then that did decline and, and we find that there's sort of a, a regression to just sort of male domination but there was other uh, one other example i would like to just highlight and that was queen emma um, who um, was another early 11th century uh, queen in England um, and she did try to gain an enormous amount of power for herself but it's quite interesting because she failed largely she she dominated her sons who who then sort of um, took the throne but she she never quite succeeded she was never fully recognized as queen in her own right even though she was a great self-publicist and tried very hard and I think Emma did meet Matilda when Matilda was very young she came over to Flanders to seek refuge there and I think she probably did influence Matilda as a sort of example of a great female uh, sort of role model but really Matilda carved out a new position. There had been no other sort of directly comparable queen consort before Matilda who'd really taken on almost an equal status with the king. That was extraordinary. So was she a trailblazer for future queens? She was absolutely a trailblazer and she carved out a new role model really, a new model of queenship that other queens would then seek to emulate. Notably her own daughter-in-law, uh, Matilda of Scotland. You get lots of Matildas around this time, funnily enough. Uh, and then of course we have Empress Matilda in, in the following century. And even the likes of the great you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine, you can hark back to the model that Matilda had set up and which queen's consort um, who followed her all tried to, to copy. So, if she was so important, um, why, why isn't she more prominent in the historical record thus far? Why don't people talk about her? I think it shows a great deal of, of bias on the part of the um, contemporary chroniclers in that they all tend to focus on the, the role of William. Um, and, and this was typical. It wasn't just Matilda, but other women of, of the 11th century are sort of not given the prominence they deserve. So it's only by tracing her actions and really piecing together the threads of her life that you realise just how influential um, she was. And also she's just overshadowed by the great sort of warrior king that William was. It's, it's the date that every school child knows, 1060 has gone down you know it's the most famous date in history and I think that itself has overshadowed it's seen 1066 is just inextricably linked with William the Conqueror and, and his wife is just and most people who, who I talk to about my book say I didn't even know William was married you know Matilda is so little known but really really undeservedly so did, did you find enough records to go on then to, to piece together this story and if so what where were they what, what sort of records were you looking at 
I was very um, pleasantly surprised because I did begin uh, this project not knowing if I would be able to construct a book out of it because, you know, um, sources in the 11th century are pretty scarce, certainly compared to my, my last book on Elizabeth I. Um, but I was just really um, amazed by the richness of the sources. They're largely um, Norman sources, uh, so there is a little bit of bias in some of them. Um, and they're written by uh, the monastic chroniclers of the 11th and 12th centuries primarily. And so Norman French is, uh, is something that um, I had to become familiar with, although the, there are some English translations. So most of the um, contemporary records were from Normandy, but also then we, to counter that we have records such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. Of course, Doomsday Book was an enormously valuable source because it helped chart Matilda's wealth, her land holdings and her influence in judicial cases. And then we have um, sort of pictorial ev evidence of the Bayeux Tapestry and then the architectural evidence from both um, England and Normandy. So all pieced together, incredibly rich as a historical source. She doesn't feature in the Bayeux Tapestry, does she? She doesn't. Um, there is a theory that one of her daughters um, is represented because um, her probably Adeliza, her eldest daughter, was um, betrothed to Harold as part of a pact when Harold was captured in Normandy shortly before he became king. He promised to recognise William's claim to the throne. Well, this is according to Norman uh, version of events. And uh, William's, uh, William and Matilda's eldest daughter was given as a bargain in that. And she, that may be depicted in the Bayeux tapestry but there are various other theories about what this mysterious woman who appears in the tapestry you know who she actually was and lastly you talked about the architectural sources um if if i if i had a mind to go somewhere to try and understand matilda is there any way you particularly recommend that i should i should head off and have a look at i think if you were to go as as far afield as normandy then um you should head straight to Caen, where the two abbeys that william and matilda built are are still in existence and indeed um, they're buried um, in each there abbeys so Matilda's tomb you could still visit that would be a great place to start and other palaces uh, you know still in existence or at uh, Rouen for example which was another seat of power um, and Falaise which has gone down in legend as being uh, you know the, the place of William's birth and his father was said to have um, you know been strolling around the ramparts when he, one evening when he'd spotted William's uh, future mother washing clothes in a stream and fell in love with her although really he'd have needed a good pair of binoculars because it's quite a way from the castle but back in England um, you'd have to start at the Tower of London which you know is possibly the most iconic Norman site that we have and um, William built it to suppress the uh, evil inhabitants of London as he called them um, and uh, interesting also to, to head over to, to Gloucester where Matilda's rebellious firstborn son is buried in the cathedral. Brilliant. I'm delighted to be able to report to you that I have been to all those sites you've mentioned. Fantastic. Barring fillets. I went there, but the castle was shut. So oh, there's another there podcast there, places I've been to that have been shut. <laughs> um, Tracy, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
That was Tracy Borman. You can read her feature in the October issue of the magazine and her book, Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror, is published now by Jonathan Cape. Next, I've been talking to John Henderson of Nottingham University, where he is an Associate Professor of Archaeology. John's specialism is underwater archaeology, and one of his most exciting projects is the investigation of a submerged city off the coast of Greece, and that city is called Pavlo Petri. The research he's doing there is the subject of a forthcoming BBC Two documentary. So when I spoke to John, the first question I put to him was, Pavlo Petri, where is it and what is it? Well, Pavlo Petri, um, it's the oldest submerged town in the world. It's um, just off the southern coast of Greece, um, off the peninsula of Laconia, um, near, near uh, Neapoli. Um, and it's literally just a few metres off the coast of southern Greece. And it covers an area of about eight hectares, it's about eight football pitches, something like that. And it's the remains of an entire Bronze Age city. Um, and as you sort of swim over it, you sort of see a s- massive spread of stones and then you begin to notice in amongst that walls and then once you see a wall, you realise it's part of a building foundation and then you see that building out into courtyards. Um, there's quite some paved streets. Um, there's, there's larger public buildings. There's things we think might be shrines. In amongst that, there's, there's graves. There's rock slab cut graves. There's massive rock cut chambered tombs. I mean, as an archaeologist, underwater sites don't get much better than that. Okay. You say it's Bronze Age. Can you just put that in context a bit? What, what, what dates are we talking about and what else was going on in and around Greece at the time? Well, I think this is one of the, the one of the really exciting things about this site is, is just the date. Is it, it's the Bronze Age is basically from about three thousand to one thousand BC, um, and we actually found last year at uh, Pavlo Petri pottery from the final Neolithic, the final Stone Age. So from about three thousand five hundred BC. So we've got a settlement that seems to be beginning as a as a as a Neolithic village probably involved in fishing and that kind of thing, and then growing and becoming a a city by the end of the Bronze Age. Um, And I think it's a really important period in terms of the development of, 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 of human society. And in some ways we can kind of, we can trace the beginnings of European city and town life in Pavlo Petri. Um, if you think at the beginning of it, you know, the end of the Stone Age, we've got people still living farming lifestyles, um, basically concerned with subsistence and that kind of thing, and then beginning to produce a surplus. And once they do that, that frees them and allows them to concentrate in other things. Once you can produce a surplus, people can specialise in other areas of work, and you start getting a sort of level of complexity in society, and you get professions, you get people beginning to become full-time craftsmen, potters, bronze workers, artists, that kind of thing. Um, But the other thing, of course, about the Bronze Age is people start using bronze. Um, And bronze, you know, to make bronze, you need copper and tin. Copper and tin are never found together. Um, And particularly, there's not, you know, major deposits of copper or tin in Greece. And so to enter into the Bronze Age world, really, they had to trade and they had to get that copper and tin to make bronze. And that's kind of the key to the the Bronze Age and the developments we see. People have to be in contact with each other. Exchange has to take place. Um, And that, again leads to a, a complexity. People are, are ideas, goods, even people are moving around the Eastern Mediterranean. 
Um, and I think the key thing about Pavlo Petri is, of course, it's a port town, and it's right at the cusp of that. And the new influences coming from areas further to the east, you know, Egypt and Syria and places like that, are beginning to have a massive effect on the society. And they're becoming modern in a way that we would recognise today. So we've got the whole story, really, from 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 stone age farmers right up to a, a quite complex administration um, city-like life with you know ships going up and down the mediterranean and that's what's really exciting for me about it okay so it, it ties in with the with the wider network do we do do we have any evidence for for what was going on here other than what you've been finding i mean w- w- is there any documentary evidence that that that, that tells us anything at all about pablo petri well, um, this is the—I mean—the period of the, the Greek Bronze Age. I mean, it's—it's—it's a—it's a good uh, two thousand years, three thousand to one thousand BC. Um, It's—it's it's basically as, as as distant as we are from the Romans now. So it's a very long period of time. And within that period, we have the growth of the Minoan civilization, the first European civilization, really, which appears on Crete. And then slightly later, from about one thousand six hundred BC, we have the Mycenaean civilization growing up in uh, in the mainland of Greece. And in terms of documentary evidence, we don't actually have writing of history at that period, but we do have the beginnings of writing, and that's more related to administration, related to recording the goods that are being moved back and forth. So the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, about you know, over 100 years ago, these, these civilizations were unknown. Um, but now, as more and more work's being done on them, they're turning out to be much more advanced than anyone had really previously thought. In fact, a lot of the things that you would associate with the Romans, such as, you know, roads, aqueducts, um, writing, um, bridges, were all in existence in the Bronze Age. They were all done, you know, a good, a good few thousand years before the Romans appeared. Um, and as people know about uh, the palatial uh, centres on, on Crete, you've got um, sites such as Knossos, um, you've also got Mycenae, obviously, um, mentioned by, by Homer, um, but it's a palatial, it's a large citadel um, in mainland Greece. And we know a bit about the major centres, about the, you know, the, the, the citadels that grew up, but we don't know so much about the trade that allowed these centres to develop. And that's what's exciting about Pavlo Petty. It's a harbour town. It becomes a harbour city. This was where the trade um, and interactions that allowed these cities to develop actually took place. So, OK, so, but, but Pavlo Petri doesn't feature in any of those, those sources no. that, um, that, that you mentioned. We, so, have no, we don't know what Pavlo Petri was actually called. Um, it's called Pavlo Petri just because there's a small island near the site, which is called Pavlo Petri, Peter and Paul in, in, in Greek. Right. Um, and there's no written reference to it. However, there might be um, a name um, that we haven't recognised yet in the text, which actually does relate to Pavlo Petri. So it's a bit mysterious in some ways. So when did when when did it first you know come to light then? It's been lost for for, for millennia, presumably. Yeah, I mean it was discovered in 1967 by an oceanographer called Nick Fleming, um, who's based at the University of Southampton, and he was in the area actually looking for submerged towns, um, and he came across uh, Pavlo Petri. You know, it was just a major discovery at the time. Um, and then in 1968, a team from the University of Cambridge went back and actually planned um, the remains they could see at the time, uh, just with uh, hand tapes and measuring tapes and snorkels, and it produced a fantastic um, plan of a Bronze Age town. And it actually, in terms of archaeology, it was a major discovery. Um, and anyone who was doing underwater archaeology knew about it. But then there was no further work after that. It basically went into the care of the Greek state, um, and there's been no excavation on the site um, and no further survey. 
Okay, um, but and, and now, but now you've, you've you've come along and you've been able to to get the necessary permits to start doing some work on it. Yes, I mean we're working in collaboration with the Greek government, with the Hellenic Ministry of Culture, underwater archaeology effort. They're called the underwater archaeology team. So it's a collaboration between Greece and the British School in Athens. Um, and it's the first time I think um, you know a, a foreign school has has worked in collaboration with the Greeks to do some actually excavation underwater. We started the excavations this year. And, and why are you, an academic from Nottingham, involved in this? What's uh, how, how do you come to be part of this? Well, for me, it's a bit of a dream because um, I first read about Pavlo Petri when I was a thirteen-year-old boy. I had a book, uh, the Atlas of Underwater Archaeology. Um, and there was actually a paper in it written by Nick Fleming, and it had a picture of uh, Pavlo Petri and the plan of it. And I thought, one day I would just like to swim on that. I'd like to at least dive on it. Um, and then the opportunity came to actually work on the site because we had a, a postdoctoral um, fellow called Chrysanthi Gallo at the University of Nottingham who was studying the pottery from the original 68 season, the pottery that was lifted up then. And we just got talking and thought, well, wouldn't it be great to go back and actually you know, survey it using modern methods, using all the new technologies that are available now and in as much 3D detail, detail as we can. And I've been involved in underwater survey for a number of years, although most of it's been you know, work in Western Europe, although I've around the world. The good thing about underwater archaeology is you get to travel quite a bit. Um, so it was really just an opportunity and we just went for it and I'm, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled that I did. I mean, it's just an amazing site to work on. And does, does the current financial situation in Greece affect research at all? Is it, does it impact on what you can and can't do? Um, of course it has an impact. Um, money's harder to find in terms of grants. Um, and the grants aren't as high as they used to be because, you know, there's not as much money in them anymore. But um, because we're working off getting academic grants, um, we also have private sponsors involved in the project. It doesn't affect us too much in terms of raising the money. Well, things are more more expensive than they, than they were. But the other thing that we're, we're hoping to do with Pavlo Petri in the future is, is develop some sort of centre for public awareness there, maybe create a museum near it to help not only protect the site, but also help develop the area because that, that part of Laconia is absolutely beautiful in southern Greece and yet it's not really developed, it's not really on the tourist map yet. And one of the great assets that Greece has, of course, is, is its heritage. Yeah. Um, and in a kind of longer term view, I would like to leave a legacy behind from this project where not only people can go and visit the site and see the things we've found, but equally there's some level of protection for it as well. Because, of course, it's so close to the, to the coast, it's just off a beautiful sandy beach. People can go and, you know, take bits of it off, you know, take bits of pottery off. Um, at least that was happening before we started. Now that we've got the project in place, the local community know about it, the Coast Guard are guarding it, it's illegal to do that. But you really need a presence there. I mean, the protection of underwater sites is a difficult one because you need a kind of a, some, a pair of eyes keeping an eye on it, if you know what I mean. And that's what we're hoping to get from, 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 from this project. Right. Give, give me a taste of what was going on in, in Pavlo Petri in, uh, I, I don't know, in 1500 BC or something like that. What, what sort of activities have you been able to identify? Well, the site itself is, is just strewn with uh, ceramics and finds. I mean, there's literally thousands of ceramics all over it. Um, and what we can see from that um, is that there's, there's, there's trade, say about 1600 BC, we've got a lot of evidence for trade with Crete. So we know that people were, uh, boats were going in, they were coming, you know, coming back uh, laden with, with large storage vessels, pithos storage vessels, um, which would have been filled with things like you know, olive oil, grain, um, probably perfumes. Perfumes were quite important in the Bronze Age. Smelling nice seemed to be a <laughs> thing that people were quite into. Um, and we can tell from that, you know, that we've got 
scribes, we've got people recording what's coming in and out, we've got merchants and traders, um, there's obviously some sort of organisation, there'll be some sort of level of city leaders and so on. And amongst the plan that we have, we have, you know, buildings sitting side by side in streets, almost like a kind of prehistoric suburbia. You've got, you know, for a lot, amongst the first time really in Europe, um, this is one of the sites where people are beginning to live a kind of town life with neighbours, you know, um, meeting them in the street, perhaps even, you know, commuting to work and things like that. So um, it's a very complex picture. As, as, as I said, there's about 2,000 years at least worth of occupation there, and we're only just beginning to scrape that surface. That's quite, quite an astonishing concept that prehistoric people were commuting to work. Is, it, <laughs> is that, you know, are you, are you stretching the truth there? Or is that, I'm is stretching that... it a bit there, I think. <laughs> I was just trying to think of a, of a way of seeing a connection with a sort of modern um, uh, suburban life. Because but, but you do see it as a, as a suburbia, a Bronze Age suburbia. In some ways, yeah, yeah, because we've, we've, we've got the, the, the domestic dwellings, you know, in, in streets, in little clusters, side by side. Um, and we've got larger sort of what look to be sort of public type buildings. Um, and we're beginning to see, you know, just, I keep coming back to this, but this idea, a level of complexity which hasn't been seen before. And I think this is when humans are beginning to kind of realise their potential in some ways. The connections that have broken, uh, that, have, that have opened up as a result of the trade in bronze have suddenly, you know, created somewhat of a revolution, you know, the birth of, of European life. I think the Minoan culture in Crete has been re- referred to as the naissance of European life, you know, so we have the Renaissance afterwards, but the naissance was perhaps in the Bronze Age. So what, do you have any idea about why it might have become submerged? Okay, there, I mean, there's two main reasons why um, a, a site's underwater. Either the, the, the sea level comes up or the, or, the, or the land itself goes down. And we know um, in the Mediterranean that the sea levels were more or less are the same as they are today within about a metre, around 3000 BC. So what we're actually looking at is we're looking at, at earthquake activity. We're looking at earth movements. And the Aegean, the, 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 um, the eastern Mediterranean, is one of the most active tectonic earthquake zones in the world world. Um, and you have um, all across that area sites that have been sub- submerged. Um, uh, you know, we know that Pavlo Petri has gone down by about four to five metres. Um, areas such as the Bay of Naples in, in, in Italy has gone down by 10 metres and there's Roman remains there. But equally, um, in other areas, that pushes land up. So you have, you know, in Western Crete's gone up by about six metres. So essentially, it's, it's earthquake activity. And one of the things we want to try and work out is, is did it go down in one event or did it go down in a series of events um, after about 1000 BC? Finally, let me ask you, what are, you sort of, what are your hopes for the project? What, are you, what sort of questions are you hoping you might be able to get an answer to um, at the end of your research here? Well, qu- quite simply, I really just want to know um, what was going on at Pavlo Petri, who was living there, what they were doing, um, but be able to date some of the buildings. I mean, the thing is, at the moment, we have a plan um, which seems to be a sort of coherent whole, but we know we have pottery across 2,000 years, at least. Um, And we did some test uh, pits this year, two small test excavations, and we came down mainly on 17th century BC 
uh, occupation. So I don't know where the later occupation is from there. And what I want to do is be able to actually date the buildings, you know, relate the pottery that we're seeing on the seabed to the buildings itself, and maybe begin to t start to tell the story um, of, a, of, a, of a Neolithic fishing village, a Stone Age fishing village developing into, a, into quite an important harbour town and then into, you know, a major port. And then what happened, you know, after 1100 BC, we have no further evidence for occupation. Where did the people go? You know, why did they leave? Was it a natural, uh, you know, a, a natural catastrophe? Uh, was it an earthquake? Was it just something that was happening more widely in the Bronze Age? Because it's quite common at this period that sites become um, abandoned. Lastly, is this is this the most exciting uh, underwater dig you've worked on, or uh, you said you've, you've worked all over the world? Have you actually been anywhere better than this? No, I, I think this is the most exciting site um, I've ever worked on. I mean, sites like this don't come along every day, and it's just a real honour and a privilege to be able to work on it. And certainly, some of my colleagues have said to me, "You know, how did you get to work in that site?" And it's really we asked. <laughs> we decided, could we do it? And it's just, you know, I'm just, I'm just every day, I'm, I'm diving on that site when we're working there. It's just, I just can't believe it. Um, and just the idea that, you know, because the sea is constantly moving things around, it's constantly excavating the site in some ways, you always find something new. Every dive, you're finding something. And that's, you know, that's pretty rare. That was John Henderson of Nottingham University. And City Beneath the Waves, Pavlo Petri, is showing on the 9th of October at 8pm on BBC Two. Do get in touch if you've got any comments on the podcast. The email is podcast at historyextra.com or, as I said at the start, you can get us on Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra and Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra. Next week, we'll be talking about English history with Peter Ackroyd, and we will be seeing who's new in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll join us next week. <laughs>